Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Laura Jane Grace. She is just uh, one of the best people who's been making music for the last uh, 20 years. Her band, Against Me, is often called one of the most important punk rock bands. And I know how important that is to you, Laura, um, or always has been to be considered part of that scene and to be a legitimate punk. Um, but I think in a way it, it limits, uh, the people who might expose themselves to the music you've been making. Cause to my money, for my money, you're just one of the best songwriters in any genre making music. And if you're someone who is listening to this podcast and know the kinds of bands or musicians I sometimes talk to, uh, you know, if you love Jason Isbell or Justin Towns Earl or the whole steady, there's a lot that you'll still dig, um, about what Laura does. And Laura wrote a memoir called Tranny that is really great. And I spent the last couple of weeks um, reading and uh, I'm really excited to talk to her. Hi, Laura. Hi, thank you so very much for that that intro. I really appreciate it. That's, a, that's all very flattering. Thank you. No, I'm not trying to be flattering. I am, uh, I was struck as I've been listening to the music and you know, that's why I started following you on Twitter was that the the music has so much um, heart in it, I think, and so much intelligence behind it. And it really always felt like as a listener, the music was saving your life. And then reading your book, it seems like, in fact, you were using it for that purpose for a long time. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I definitely like, uh, started out in the school of thought with punk rock of like live fast, die young. Um, not really expecting to make it past like 26 or 27, you know? Um, and, and a lot of that feeling feeling came from, uh, uh, thinking that the places that I lived or where I was coming from, you know, like, uh, geographically was inescapable. Like South Florida felt inescapable at the time, you know, like there, there, there didn't feel like there was a future. So, um, music kind of was my only hope and all I had to really strive for. And especially, you know, not feeling like I could adequately express everything that I felt inside, oftentimes not having words for it. Um, it became the, you know, uh, indispensable outlet. Well, yeah, the reductive thing would just be to say that all of that stuff was about gender, but when, and that was obviously this giant thing, but in reading the book and then going back and looking at the, at the lyrics and knowing your various experiences, it seems to me, it was also this sense you described Florida soil, but it seems to me, it's also like, um, this general sense of alienation from the community that you were in from the value system that you saw around you, not not merely this sense that you knew you were uh, identified as the wrong gender, but but in in fact, the way you were looking at the world, the prism through which you were seeing it just didn't seem to jibe with the way everyone around you was seeing it. Sure. That and that there I, I think there was a lot of different factors to that. You know, um, part of that just came from my upbringing of um, being in a military family and moving around so much uh, from a very young age. And so getting a really like a uh, pretty expanded worldview by the time I was like in the fifth grade, having lived overseas and lived on, you know, several different military bases. And uh, then, you know, my parents divorced and uh, moved to South Florida and South Florida just seemed uh, like a cultural vacuum moving there from like Italy um, specifically at the time. Um, and Naples in particular, where I moved to, there was just such differences yeah. in class and, um, and the way like youth was treated specifically, like Naples is very much a tourist oriented economy, uh, very much caters to, um, the elderly population and, uh, just to the super wealthy. So if you were, um, you know, a, a young kid, uh, in a divorced family, um, you know, just like with no real direction, it was not a great place to be. You mean Naples, Florida, just to be clear, because you said Italy, you mean Naples, Florida. Well, I, yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I, I moved from Naples, Italy to Naples, Florida. So, right. Yes. But the, <laughs> but the one you're talking about is the one in Florida, right? That, that where you felt it was catered to these older people, you know, not to somebody like you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and also, you know, it was, um, there was the culture shock even of like, I didn't have MTV until I was like 11 or 12 years old. And then I moved back to the U S and immediately just thrown into this world of like, 
um, you know, Air Jordans and uh, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana and all this, you know, just like total overload. Um, but uh, not really, you know, if, if you're living in South Florida, there's only one way to go and that is North. There's no other, there's no other <laughs> escape, you know? Um, so the rest of the world just felt really out of reach. No bands toured down there. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I, I really, you know, I got arrested at a pretty young age. So it was yeah. already like a convicted felon. And when you're 15 years old in South Florida and you've got a felony record, everyone around you is telling like, you have no future. You will never do anything with your life. You've ruined your life. Um, this is it, you know? And, uh, so it, it all felt very inescapable at the time, but music was, I had always been drawn to music and I just like always, I don't know. I always wanted to be in a band and, um, I followed that, you know? Um, and, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. No, it also seems that, um, because you were keeping this huge secret and trying to understand this part of yourself, you were talking to yourself, it, it feels to me, like from a very young age, you were almost talking to yourself like an adult or like the version of you who would be there later. Like you were cataloging and, and watching be, because you felt so outside of yourself in, in some way. Sure. And I, and I think, do you think that, and I don't know when you, you don't say exactly when you started journaling, but it feels like this kind of self-talk was the kind of self-talk a writer does even before you knew that? A hundred percent. I, well, I was, I um, started journaling as a school assignment, uh, in the third grade, I think it was second or third grade. And, uh, at the time my father had to go to Germany to do like some training exercises and me and my brother and my mother were going along with them. So my teacher gave me the assignment of keeping a journal and it was a really, um, impressionable trip. Uh, we went, you know, my parents brought us to Dachau concentration camp and uh, understanding what the, the Nazis were and what happened during the Holocaust for um, for an eight year old was just super impressionable. And um, yes. and also then coincidentally, during that that trip, my brother was hit by a car. So there's these two like things that I really like I wrote a lot about in my mm. in my journal. And I wrote about the drive there to Germany from Italy and um, then, you know, turned it in at the end of the, the time gone and got a really good grade on it and just kind of always kept on journaling from there. And, you know, there was various points over my adolescence where I saw different psychiatrists or therapists on and off for brief, brief stints. And, um, that kind of like, I don't know, hyper awareness and, um, yes. using a journal to, 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 to work out your feelings was just a tool that was given to me through those, those experiences. And, um, you know, I do very much like split it conscious wise where like I usually speak in like an us or a we or like a talking to myself like a you've got to do this tomorrow. You've got to wake <laughs> up and do the podcast with Brian, you know, um, as if I'm like I'm an other or it's my shadow, you know. <laughs> no, I understand it totally. And we were talking before we started about this idea of burning journals because I really do have because I do morning pages and people listen to this. No, I I. I really do have instructions to burn them. I don't go back to my journals. Uh, once in a while, I'll go back five years and I'll look if and just try to sort of see if I recognize the trajectory. But you did you actually you said you burned them after you used them for Tranny, the memoir. Did you burn them? I did. Yeah, I burnt them at my friends in Michigan. They have like a fire pit or whatever. So uh yeah, I, I, I did. I held true and uh, <laughs> did away with them. And it was, you know, it was freeing. I had, it, it, I had already like fully transcribed them all. So there's digital files that exist. <laughs> well, that doesn't, it doesn't count. <laughs> well, I had to do it for Laura. the book, though. I had to do it for the book. <laughs> the um, files will be corrupted. They'll be no good in like five years. Don't worry. Yeah, you'll have to do that thing um, where you heat heat them up, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to the, 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 like tape. <laughs> Um, all right. I, where I really wanted to start originally was to ask you um, how Evelyn is and how you and Evelyn are. You know, the book gets to this beautiful place of the two of you holding hands. And um, but you have trepidation as the book comes to a close and about how that's all going to be. So I, I just want to know, how are you doing and how are you guys you know, the two of you doing together. Sure. Well, I, any parent is going to tell you that like part of the parenting experience is, is doubt, you know, and being, yes. Like, oh, oh, I feel it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> like, Oh, I'm doing a terrible job, you know, like, or, or how am I messing up? Um, but you know, we're, we're good. Uh, all things considered with this year, we're really good. Um, 
you know, living here in Chicago, I, I do month on month off parenting. So like I, you know, my Evelyn's with me this month, they're in the other room right now, actually doing zoom classes. Uh, so remote schooling, you know, the trials and tribulations of that. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and trying to, trying to stay sane under a stay at home advisory right now and being, you know, cooped up. Uh, yes. this is honestly like, you know, the most stationary I've been in my entire adult life. So usually my schedule is like, I'll go on tour for a month and then I'll come home and I'll be a parent for a month and then go back on tour. And during the summers or when she can, she comes on the road with me. Um, I, I love, you know, bringing her to travel places and getting her getting to see the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, circumstances are what they are right now but uh we're, we're doing we're doing as well as we can be no it's a beautiful part of the book when you're hoping she'll be a girl and then she is a girl and um and this whole idea of having something more than you to to live for even though there are times where you're considering not but but here's in all these interviews i've read with you and then in the whole book laura you will say things like um Okay, then I had to write a batch of songs. And then sometimes you'll talk about being frustrated at not being able to quite do what you'd hope to do. But I don't think you ever talk about the satisfaction of having written something like Teenage Anarchist. And I like you never talk about the the moments when occasionally you'll talk about like some good moment on stage, but you rarely will talk about as an artist the thing that you do that like nobody else, like the thing that because you say, oh, I want to go write, I have to write a hit record. And like a million people have told themselves <laughs> that. Well, um, but then you don't do it for a week, right? You, you go for a week, you can't do it. And then suddenly you write, you don't even tell us that you wrote Tina. Or, so can you just talk about when you do something like that or when you write an album like Transgender Dysphoria, like... But start with Teenage Anarchist, because there's something about a 31-year-old writing a song that's nostalgic like that, that shows this kind of disappointment itself, but also that those things were worth it. Like, that's an incredibly special thing. And every time you've ever played it since, whole audiences of people sing along. It cuts across generations. It's like a great Pete Townsend song. So, um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> great Joe Strummer song, whatever you want to say. I, I love, um, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, I love The Who. Um, but... Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what it is when you write something, when you do something like that, do you give yourself a moment of going like, Oh, I just, you know, I just did something really good. My moments of satisfaction are far different than, uh, I think outwardly perceived in that way. Like I do have moments where I'm alone in my office or wherever on the road and I'll write a song that I am really happy with in a way that I'm really happy with where I'm like, yes, that's the best feeling, you know, unfortunately yes. that best feeling is oftentimes followed by the feeling of like, I'll never do it again. <laughs> you know, that like, oh, I don't I really know how do. to do this, which is why you do the morning pages, which is why you stay in the practice. But, you know, honestly, like things like, you know, like the song I was a teenage anarchist or like transgender dysphoria blues or, or even really specifically with the book, you know, the feeling of completion when those were done was much more of a kicking a carcass across a finish line feeling, <laughs> you know, of just Wait, like... even as a songwriter, I understand the recording process because you really talk about that a lot and the struggle of playing other... But, but even as a songwriter, like, I want to stay in this because it's good about your head, like the head of somebody who does it. Like, so that song now has lasted so many years, right? And you know, still, you could be with an acoustic guitar, right? If you start playing that song, the whole audience sings along, right? They sing sure. every word. <laughs> When you wrote that chorus, when you got that idea, do you remember writing it? Were you too fucked up when you're, do you remember writing that song? I do remember that writing that song specifically also because that song, um, I took kind of a backwards approach to that song where I had the title first. I was like, I want to write a song like Michael Landon. I was a teenage werewolf. Like I was right. a teenage anarchist, something like that. So I could see it in my head and I set about writing the song, but you know, the original version of the song, uh, it was a strange transitionary period of the band where, um, you know, it was written while we were still playing with um, our drummer, Warren, who had been right. with the band for the first four records. And so we had a version with him. And then before we actually went into the studio to record it with Butch, um, and it was our second record with Butch Vig. Butch Vig, yeah. Um, so before we actually went into the studio, we switched drummers. So we had to like go back and kind of rework all the songs 
to work with the new drummer. And then we entered into the pre-production process where the song was really like stripped down so many times and changed so many times. And that was one in particular where like, you know, people knew like the people around us were like, that's a really good song. You could, you should really keep pursuing it. Um, but to the point of just like, keep working at it. Like the, you know, the A&R person, Craig Aronson was just like, I don't know that maybe double the course, no triple the course, no, do the, <laughs> like, you know, so we would just keep doing it and doing it and like doing it different ways and making these small tweaks. And, and then, you know, the line in the, in the bridge that it builds to the, like the revolution was a lie. Like that was the very last piece of the actual record where the whole entire record was recorded. We left the studio that it was recorded in and i was still going over to butch's house while the record was being mixed and punching that line and different versions so it, you know it started out you as mean like, to find the right melody you mean to find the right like sort of intonation and melody to sing it no well the the melody was there it was like the actual specific lyrics so it started out your vision leaves me blind the revolution oh, wow. left me blind like the just so many different flips of the words like various like oh, wow. cadences and stuff like that and then i then you know came up with the revolution was a lie and that was it and it was like it was almost it, it was almost unfair in that like you know i was being pushed to like come up with a line come up with a better line come up with a better line and i came up with that one that a lot of the people who were really into the band early on in our anarcho-punk days took as like this stab in the back of like oh yeah, you're right. saying the revolution was a lie when really it was just you know, the fucking A&R guy and the record producer kept telling me to come up with lines that I, I spat that one out. But, and it but also fit. as you grow up, but let's talk. <laughs> OK, but let's talk more about this, because I like, yes, the, the I'm fascinated by how much you care about those people who were with you in the beginning. Um, and I understand it. Right. Because I've always part of me has always felt bad that there are so many people who love R.E.M. as much as I do, because I <laughs> want them to be the band I loved on the first four albums, you know, you know what I mean? Sure, um, yeah. <laughs> so I do understand, and I, I understand the people who, you know, like the work Dave and I did at the beginning of our career. Like, I understand all that, but, um, but the revolution was a lie is sort of like what any grown up fears about themselves, right? That I'm not living up to who I should be. Oh, it's, sure. Yeah. And it works. It's a great line. It does make sense yeah. with the song and the, it's right, you know, like, and I, and I don't regret the line. I'm not saying it like that or anything like that, but, um, but I'm just saying there wasn't that much intent of like, you know what, I really got to stick it to the revolution, <laughs> you know, like it wasn't <laughs> coming from that place. There was no malice involved in the line, you know? So when you write the song, it's more like there's a little bit of relief and disappointment, not a lot of joy. The disappointment that maybe you're, you can never do it again. Well, I'm relief that you kind of wrote it, but not a lot of, you didn't have a lot of like that feeling. Cause sometimes writers will have at least a day or two where they're on a high from doing something like that. I, I really strongly believe like you're only as good as the last song you wrote. And I'm always, um, you know, trying to write that next song and to keep after it. So I really, I just have gotten in the habit of not being able to rest. And really like at that point in particular with, I was a teenage anarchist. I mean, that was in the middle of, we were going through a terrible lawsuit yeah. as, with, as a band and, you know, really felt like, felt like we were fighting for our lives as a band, you know? Um, so we were just like, we need a hit. And so oftentimes, um, the, like that feeling of celebration is, is passed over for this immediate fear of like, okay, well, how's this going to do, you know, or how's it going to go? Or you suppress it because, you know, the way it actually works from a musician's perspective is you finish this song that you're really happy about. And now you have to wait five months until the record label puts it out. So you just don't want to think about it for five months because you're sure. going to drive yourself insane thinking about it, you know? So you just have to put it behind you and move on. And similar with transgender dysphoria blues, like that was just a period of time in my life where I had so much going on around me and it felt again, like kicking a carcass across the finish line and just like there it's done. Just get it away from me. Take it away. Someone else deal with it. Even a song like black me out, which is like a perfect, like almost in a lot of ways, like the song you've been trying to write for a really long time. Even a, a song like that, you'll write it and you don't spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, I did it. I wrote one. 
No, uh, other than, you know, there, there's, I get the genuine excitement of knowing I have it to record. And then once it starts <laughs> the recording process, then it's like all downhill yes, from there. But I that like, I got it. That. I got the idea. This was going to be great. We're going to do it this time. Um, but then, you know, then it goes in motion and the manic episode wears off, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I, I, yes, I understand all that. I mean, yes, I really do. Um, when, uh, I, yeah, I try to hold on to those moments when it feels like you've done something I, cause it's like, you get so few of those that when you have it, I, I try to like, at least allow myself to, um, enjoy them for a little bit of time before then it's like, Oh fuck, I have to film this now. How am I going to do that? But at least <laughs> I like the little moments of the little small victories. Um, so much of, uh, so much of, of what goes on, what you talk about has to do with this, um, uneasy relationship between, commerce and art and and being misunderstood by a lot of those kind of people too um and you take yourself to task too for sometimes not being so gracious to some of the people who were whining and dining you but uh, did it uh when you came out and uh transitioned and then made you know as you're making uh transgender dysphoria blues did the way it was received allow you any peace on any of that stuff? The fact that it's like considered by a lot of people your best record or certainly like um, one of the best records you ever made. It reached across all sorts of genres. You know, you were on all sorts of like shows. Did it, did it, did it allow you to, did that allow you to kind of breathe and have any acceptance for yourself in the situation? It really did, actually. Um, it, um, in a, in the most surprising way, it felt like really vindicating, and um, it allowed me really specifically to live like the best four or five years of my life. <laughs> I feel like That's thus great. far, where just doing some of like the most gratifying, like epic traveling and playing these really great shows and having it feel like the band should feel like in that way where. You know, all these years prior where you were always like, you know, am I really just that person who always thinks that there's a problem with everything? I feel like right. it could be better to then have it be like, oh, this, oh, this is it. Like the, it does feel this way. It can be possible. You know, that, that was, that was great. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. I think about it all the time, especially, you know, right now, um, not being able to tour or anything. Um, I, I think about it often. I'm thankful for the memories. And do you think a lot of that has to do with, finally writing exactly the way you wanted to write without having to do that extra layer of calculating about what you want to reveal of yourself? Um, a little bit, but also more of like, just like a, a surrender, you know? Cause like yes. I, I was really, really happy with all of the writing on transgender dysphoria blues, but then like I could pick apart the recording process or some of the mix stuff or mastering stuff, whatever, you know, I can, I can get into the stuff like that, the perspective that the band will always have that's separate than everyone else's perception, you know? Um, but it was really like, uh, just like freeing in this way of like, you know, I set a goal for myself with making the record and then it was made and whatever, accept it for whatever flaws there were. And the lessons there really then translated to myself of just like, I need where I was at personally of like, I got to accept myself for whatever flaws I have right now. And I just kind of got to put myself out there of like, take it or leave it. This is what, this is what life is. And um, here we go, you know, um, and just kind of trust falling into it. Um, in a real great way. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for it, for it. And, and the, the, you produced that album yourself, right? Um, cause you, you talk about how you learned everything you could from Butch. The new album is fucking awesome. That's a solo album. And I, and I think you made it without Steve Albini, right? I did. Yeah. Uh huh. Thank you. And, and what not so good. Uh, that video really fucked me up. I mean, <laughs> I, it really did really fuck me up bad. Um, and uh, it's just so twisted and, and great. Um, but w I'm always interested in this idea of when to collaborate and when to do something on your own. And it really did feel like you were finally at a place where you wanted to just have the whole burden on you with Transgender Dysphoria Blues. And then um, on the new album, 
getting Al- Albinian, uh, and I, I love uh, so much of his work. I mean, the PJ Harvey records just destroy me. Uh, and I'm, but I'm wondering what was the thought process? Why did you want someone to bounce stuff off of? And why didn't you want to do it yourself? And what did he bring that, uh, I mean, he's a brilliant man, but what did he bring that made, made it, um, worth doing? Well, I guess like, you know, the two experiences are totally polar opposites with blues and, uh, with stay alive, the new record where, um, you know, at the time with transgender dysphoria blues, having gone through the experience of making two records with Butch, like, to me, that felt like the closest I will ever get to a college education, like a university education, like working. Yeah. It felt like I'm working with a master right now. And this is the master class, you know, like you're, you're, you're I was paying attention. I, I, I was looking at it like the what I'm going to get out of this experience that's actually worthwhile is the education here. And then after it feeling like, okay, well, you know, I'm not making a record with Butch. who has been my mentor for the past, like, you know, X amount of years. So I want to prove something, you know, I want to prove that I can do it without the guidance or not the guidance, but, you know, prove that I was paying attention and, and prove it after having gone through the major label system of, you know, major label that, as I said, telling you like, no, try it again, try the course this way, that way. And that, that uncertainty it builds in you. But with this record, um, you know, none of it was that, uh, that thought out in that way that this is more just like I'm working with the circumstances of, you know, I started the year thinking I was going to make a record with my band and we thought we were going to record in Michigan and we had all these plans and then the pandemic hit. And so being stuck in this situation where I had been writing songs for like the past year and a half, two years, and I had like 30 plus songs and we still as a band weren't totally vibing, knowing which direction we were going. So then seeing the year fall apart and realizing like, okay, well, we're probably not going to get together for a year or two years. And at that point, are we going to want to jump back into these 30 plus songs that I had that we weren't really vibing with? No. So what do I do with these songs? And what do I do also now? We're like, I'm just in Chicago. None of my band is here. I don't have any right. friends. I don't like, what do I do? Um, the most productive thing I can do is, is keep working. And while I may be an entertainer and up on stage, most of the time, the other half of my job is a recording artist. And so, you know, Steve Albini's studio um, is right down the street from me. And um, like, I very much value his approach of, you know, it's a very like working class ethic of like, I just myself called the studio and asked for four days time with him. And he responded, said he was really into it and then went into the studio, you know, and we recorded a record paid him myself at the end and walked away so super clean um but you know he prides himself on being an engineer not a producer and i wanted that i wanted someone who was just going to set up the microphones make it sound really good press record and then not tell me how to arrange my songs (laughs) and i could just record the songs and so that's what i did you know and so you never did you look at him though to say hey was that vocal take good or you didn't look you just decided on your own no i could tell like uh, i that it was all on me like decide on your own whether or not that take was good because i could tell that he is listening to it in a different way and i really appreciate that and it's like a lot more I, i'm so thankful to have had the variety of recording experiences that i've had yes but there's an element of it where he's like throwing back to like your, the original way you record of just like press record and do something and what there, there'll be imperfections yes. and then there'll be good things about it, you know, and like looking at it a different way or hearing it a different way, where if you make a mistake, sometimes the, to him, that's like the really endearing thing about the recording. Uh, but he doesn't want to give you the opinion on, on that because he's not listening to whether or not you think that there was the right emotion in something or whatever. Sure. So, you know, he was, he was suggestive sure with like um you know there was one song i was like which guitar should i use on this one and he like suggested a guitar and and it was very you know collaborative in that way and um i'm you know hell we recorded like in addition to the 14 songs that are on the record four other songs that haven't done anything yet with so we recorded 18 songs in two days and mixed them in another two so it was really efficient and really gratifying you know and did you, and, and the songs that aren't just you mostly solo on, on the record, did you play that stuff? The, or 
program stuff or who who did that yeah i did i programmed the stuff and i i pre-programmed like a couple drum loops and everything before going in there and then recorded like the bass lines and there's like electric guitar in a couple spots uh and and you know i i recorded double versions of all those songs where there's there are the versions that exist that are just being an acoustic but just for like variety and pacing on the record i thought it broke it up a little bit oh no it's great when 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 you get to the first track where there's stuff on it you're it, you're really ready for it. Yeah. I, I think that the sequence works beautifully. It, You know, I'm old enough that I still listen to albums. I still listen to the things as albums. And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just like to. So when I've been listening down to it driving around, I really do appreciate when that happens. I think you, the two of you made excellent choices. When you talk about the, the van not really vibing with the songs. Yes. What do you get out of calling yourself part of a van? Because you depict yourself as a really shitty band leader. <laughs> and and, 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 uh, and, I, and I, I, the whole time I was trying to figure out, like, what does she get out of this identity of being in a band when she writes the fucking <laughs> song, she sings the songs, she's the one working with the producer or producing it. I, I, uh, the band just seems to me to be there to resist you and give you something to fight against, um, <laughs> uh, which you had enough of in your life and all these other places. And I was like, this is a woman who doesn't need a band or I don't understand why she needs a band way to break and it's me not down even like and the original me, <laughs> yeah it's not even like the original band members like um and and so can you what do you get out of it Laura I I really like being a part of a team I don't like being in a position of authority I don't like authority I don't like it the problem is is that oftentimes no matter what within a group dynamic uh hierarchies develop And I do not like hierarchies. I do not like authority. I like to think for myself. I like to operate independently. But that being said, I do like to be a part of a community. And I do like to be a part of a team effort. And that aspect of being in a band is fantastic. And, you know, that aspect of like traveling and, and stuff like I feel like I do pretty well at actually it's the sometimes the creative part that i have trouble with and the 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 operating as a band in in a in a studio um that that i have trouble with (laughs) yeah it's like you'd prefer to be in a gang of some sort maybe but because uh even the decision which you don't talk about in the book but i know lying in bed at night you had to think of it a few times when you were dealing with all the legal problems was uh there's no way that the label insisted that the whole band sign the recording contract you could have just gotten that million and a half dollars basically yourself and paid players yeah but that sucks (laughs) i don't know like i don't want to do that you know like i i like I have like really puritanical views of what it means to be in a band and how it should be. And that's part of my problem too, you know, of like thinking that it should be this way but, and, you know, a band should But be if like that's, the, okay, but I have to ask you though, if that's the case, then what do you get out of the frustrations of that though, right? Because a lot of the time you would have a song that you knew was like the right song or an opinion of what should happen with the band and then you've set up for yourself these obstacles you know and i'm just thinking as as someone grows like like i think it's a huge sign of growth that you just went um all right i'm making this album now right um even if you people don't like the songs but would you you didn't think of calling it against me for this record yeah no um not without the band yeah and band means whichever group hap- of people happen to be in your band at this time. I guess. I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, it's the band, you know, it's James and Andrew and Adam. Um, and James and Andrew and, uh, you know, we've been playing together for the past like 15. I've, I've known James since the second day of yes, high school. Yes, of course. You know? um, but um, that's that's what the band has been for the past couple of years. Um yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess like um, I, I I recognize you as being correct. I don't know how to explain it. Um, <laughs> That's fine. That's totally fine. But 
But, but it, no, it's all for me from, I, I look at an artist operating on the level you operate on as a writer and singer and performer, and then um, putting your, yourself in positions that seem to me as an outsider, only knowing the work and going like, man, it seems like she tries to make it hard. That's all. Uh, and so I, I, but you recognize it. Yeah. I, I feel but, that's fine. But, and I recognize like that it's ingrained in me at this point it, it, in some ways, like, you know, it's making me think of how, like, I remember early on in the band, we used to talk about how like, you know, okay, like every band establishes what they're against, what they don't like, you know, we don't like war. We don't like poverty. We don't like racism. We don't like this. We don't like, you know, like, but, but, so few bands uh, say what they do like, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and especially in the punk scene. And similarly, like, I find my identity much easier saying, I don't like this. This makes me feel bad in this way. I don't like how right. this makes me feel. And I do not know how to communicate adequately with the side of myself that says, but this brings me joy. I do like this. And that's, you know, for better or worse, part of growing up in the punk scene, part of like whatever defense mechanisms I've built up emotionally over the years, part of being like super hyper aware observant, like the, the experience of growing up with gender dysphoria is makes you hyper aware in those those ways. Like you're just an observer naturally because you are aware something is not quite right about me. Um, am I being noticed? <laughs> am I acting weird or like, I don't know, right. it's all tied together, you know? You think that's all tied together and maybe part of the comfort you feel being a part of a band as opposed to only uh, alone and out there as an individual. Sure. And even just like, uh, you know, the the um, relating through sarcasm or like relating in the way like, you know, early on as a band, like we related to each other in uh, mercilessly making fun of each other, you know, like just those yes. stunted emotional growth uh, that, uh, you know, came about in whatever ways. Yeah, no, I totally understand it from the at the beginning. It just felt to me reading the book like there was a part in, where I was like, this would be so much easier for her if it was just Laura and Butch going to make a record together. You know, you know, it would just be like a lot. It felt to me like, oh, that would be easier. But but the but the the other side of it too though is that like it's way more fun to play music with a band than it is to play music as a solo artist on stage you know like just being up on stage with an acoustic right. guitar that's kind of sucks um being on stage with a band feels awesome it is fun um but you know there's all the other right hours. and i guess there's that moment where that one drummer is like you know when you guys are gonna get to that one drummer is like well you guys have a real problem on your hands where i where where the fact that that was like a paid a paid hand didn't hit even though you knew that it didn't that didn't work for you in the same way as somehow the all for one thing works for you. No, because otherwise you feel like you are surrounded by mercenaries, you okay. know, like that it's like, okay, and yes. there already is an element of that in some way of like everyone's out for themselves. Everyone is just like grabbing their stake and wants to get paid. And that's a horrible way to make art, you know? Well, okay, this is good because this gets to that true believer thing, which is as much as you have some cynicism and all that stuff, it does seem to me like you're a true believer. And I think this must be why you and Springsteen have this connection is like, it does seem like you're a believer in the possibility of salvation through rock and roll. Sure. Yeah. Which a band, which a, a, um, a band gives you more of a sense of in a way, an identity of having a band behind you with you. Yeah, I mean, the idea, I guess, like in a really idealistic, simplistic way is like, you know, I wanted to start a band to change the world and then also in turn to like change myself to like, right. you know, you want to save the world and you want to save yourself along with it. And um, trying to communicate something that you don't have an otherwise, otherwise have a way to communicate, trying to like make connections in a way you otherwise can't, um, or just even trying to get out of the state that you're stuck in, you know, um, that's the idea. And it is always like, okay, this next song, this next song is going to do it. This next song will save it all, you know, or this next record, this next, re next record is going to come together. This next tour, this next tour is going to be the one, you know, like, um, there is a little bit of that. Sure. But, but the true believer thing also seems to me why you care about 
the punk world caring about your, you know, why you care about the regard in which you hold them. There's that really sad moment in the book when the kid comes up to you and Blink one Blink one eighty two are playing and wants you to rag on them with him because they're not like sort of as credible and you you won't sell out these people that you like and the the fan pours a drink on your head and it fucking it, asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst thing ever. Uh, but it's also so that guy's a huge dick. But but also you're it seems to me like you're constantly wrestling with this question of credibility. Um sure, yeah, but but also I I don't know, you know it's it's like feeling like you know, I'm so grateful for the lessons that punk rock taught me. Um whether that's like the DIY DIY do it yourself mentality or um you know, the political awareness um the level of intelligence that I've always perceived from punk rock and to feel like I, I don't necessarily like I, I I've always held true to that in my head of like, okay, think for yourself, you know, like, and I've always taken that into account. And then it pisses me off when other people, um, when I can see that they're just like, they're not getting it right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, it, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. I'm losing my train of thought. No, <laughs> I understand it. I, I I remember going to see you two on the um, Joshua Tree tour. And I think maybe it was Bullet the Blue Sky that a bunch of people objected to. I can't remember the exact politics of it. Someone listening will tell me. But there was one song which like 10% of the audience was fucking giving them the curse finger. And then they went right back to cheering after that song because they disagreed with the politics of that. But then they were, you know, right away singing along with I Will Follow. And I was a kid, you know, I was in freshman in college or something. And I remember just thinking, God, this is so fucked up. And you've like lived the other side of that a million times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But that, but that's like, you know, I feel like there's a miss like you're it's not coming from the right perception or something or 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 like uh you know that like there's a point that's being missed with it all where like the definition of selling out or whatever is to me that like you know selling out was like if you would give up on those rock and roll dreams if you'd give you know if i would have like gotten a shitty job at a gas station or something or like just like stayed stuck in naples florida and never gone beyond there you know like just put down the guitar and never done anything. But for me, like I was like from the get go from when I was eight years old, I was like, I'm going to get a guitar. I'm going to start a band. I'm going to start touring. We're going to put out records. That's what's going to happen. We're going to save the world. And I've tried to stay true to that as much as possible, you know? So feeling like, you know, to be called a sellout in those situations is just feels ridiculous, you know? And, uh, yeah. I got a letter from Springsteen uh, shortly after we signed to uh, to the major label, and I talked about it in the book. And like, yes. you know, the perspective he gave in the, that way was completely affirming. And and you know, talking about how you know that sharing the perspective of other bands gone through it, like Springsteen talked about the Clash and like the backlash they I got for that. give them enough rope. And and I don't know, you know, you, you see, I, it I got complete chills um, listening to that part of the book. And then I I, I also wanted to ask you, I was. A, um, I remember reading Springsteen's book and getting to the part about his son um, wanting to see your band and him coming backstage and stuff. And I have to ask you, because you've not, I haven't been able to read you go slowly on this. I mean, what is all that? What did that feel like to you? And also, was that after you, you'd, Max's son had been in the band or before Max's son had been in the band? That was before Max's son, Jay, had been okay. in the band. Yeah. So... So what is it like when suddenly you hear that Bruce's son is a fan and then Bruce becomes a, like, what's that whole thing like for you? Um, I mean, it's like, I get starstruck really easily and I get nervous when I get starstruck. Did you just suddenly hear he was in the, in the audience or did you know he was coming? Uh, I I think we just, all of a sudden he was there. I don't think we got told ahead of a time. We we were playing at Starland Ballroom in Sayreville, New Jersey. Played there a ton of times. Great venue. It's like in the middle of nowhere though. There's nothing around it. It's just like a parking lot and then there's a junkyard behind it. And there's this venue in Jersey. And, um, you know, 
if you're facing the stage off to the left, there's like this bar. And I remember it was like early on, I guess doors had already opened, but someone's like, Hey, that's Springsteen over there. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just like leaning against the bar and he has like a ball cap pulled down. And so I remember we all went over and like introduced ourselves and said, Hey, and, um, you know, and then, then after the show, he came back with Evan and like went round and took pictures and was super gracious, super, you know, like, uh, super down to earth, but like, I just, I don't know what to say in those situations. I choke up. I'm just like, uh, <laughs> when you were playing the concert, were you trying like, no, I think I would be in a situation where I would just be trying so hard to either look or not look in his direction. And were you able to get him out of your head when you were doing the show? No, not at all. You know, so right. hyper aware of it. And, and it's like, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, it's like, <laughs> It's a, it's a great venue. So thankfully, like it's a great stage, great venue. The crowd was awesome. We always do really well there. So it was a good show, but you know, like you're, you're up there and you're doing your thing and you know, you're leaning extra hard into it because you know, you're excited and Springsteen is there, but then you're like self-conscious about, Oh, like, don't, Uh, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. It's such a, such a mind fuck in those ways. But, um, but yeah. Oh yeah. I would be totally mind fucked. My, my, <laughs> my, my kids make fun of me whenever I mention this, that oh, they're going to kill me, but I got to have dinner with him last year. And I'll just say it was so surreal and bizarre to talk to him. And he's so every word out of his mouth, you just want to hold on to and remember because they're so wise, you know? And, um, so when I heard that letter to you, it, I, I just thought it was, you know, he wrote you in a moment of real difficulty for you. Sure. Yeah. And I thought, what a beautiful, generous gesture for an artist like that to make to somebody. A hundred percent. I'll tell you, you know, it's funny, like there was a a moment actually about a year later, uh, we played, it was the end, we did a three month long tour tour with the Foo Fighters and uh, the last show or one of the last shows was in Vancouver and got word like at whatever point, like Springsteen's coming, they're going to come backstage and say, hey, after the show. And so we're all sitting there in like, you know, our dressing room is a locker room. We're sitting there in the locker room after our set and Springsteen comes back and he's like sitting down next to me on a bench and we're talking. And then Dave Grohl comes in and like joins the conversation. And I'm just like freaking out (laughs) inside that I'm sitting there talking to fucking Bruce Springsteen and Dave Grohl. And like there was a moment where whatever in the conversation came to a question where they both looked to me for the answer. And I just like, I totally choked. I didn't know what to say. I was like, not in the conversation. I was so hyper aware of everything that was happening. But it was like, I yeah, moment like that. I'm just like, totally fanning out. I completely understand I uh, that. Um, I Yeah, I completely understand that feeling of of not quite you want to be present and hyper present. And it's really hard to be in the flow and, and hyper present. I can imagine how that felt. And then when you read his book and you were in there, did, did someone spoil that for you? Or did it happen to you in real time? Uh, no, we, we heard about it in advance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still, though, still pretty, pretty amazingly cool. Hell yeah. Uh, Hell I, yeah. I think. And, and did uh, the difficulties you had with Max's son strain the relationship or did you just keep it separate? Uh, it just is what it is, you know, like band relationships are always going to be complicated in certain ways that, you know, within the band, there's whatever feelings and everything. But then like you recognize that outside of that, like you can't involve other people in it in those ways. Oh, yeah. sure. Well, yeah. I thought it was fascinating as a writer, your decision, like you never identified the A&R guy, but you did identify uh, Weinberg. And I was like, wow, that that. You, you kind of protect the A&R guy in a way. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think I'll, I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I think a little bit of that decision was that we actually had two A&R people ah, and, right. you know, there were some things when writing the book, uh, details like that where like, you know, it would take X amount of words or pages to explain yep. that, that it was like, that's just unnecessary. Just make So it the one. Bastards of Young A&R person isn't necessarily the same one on the second album who's giving you shit about making the chorus right. Yes, it was not at all the same one. Yeah, uh-uh. there was two separate A&R guys, but yeah, we had two, two A&R people, so yeah. Because that's the nightmare. You know, I was an a and I, I don't know if, you know, I was an A&R guy for nine years before I wrote my first script with Dave. And so <clears throat> the nightmare, that is the nightmare. You know, all <laughs> A&R guys acted like a schmuck and some, you know, some band is, well, some band that you dropped or you didn't like the mixes or, you know, because your job is so confusing. It's so confusing, that job. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, I cannot imagine. And and especially if you didn't sign the band and then you have to, it's just so confusing to do that job 
and keep your soul. It's one of the reasons I left that job. And I did a podcast with Amy Mann. I was her A&R person for a little while. And we talked through some of that stuff because I loved her and idolized her. And yet I was put in these difficult situations. And, um, and then when I flipped to the other side, Laura, and became the artist, not the thing, I completely understand how you just write those people off. Because at the way I've written off so many of those people who say dumb things to me who are executives. <laughs> so I, I get it. How do you think about that balancing act of wanting something from these people who have resources that you need with wanting creative freedom? Well, it, it's tough. It's, you know, I, I came from like, as I was saying with that live fast, die young mentality, my original approach to like made the major label world and everything was very much directly influenced by like the great rock and roll swindle. I was still like thinking in those, right. those terms, you know, of just like, this is, this is a scam. You're going to give us all this money. Like, and also feeling like, I don't know how long this is going to last, you know, it internally in the band, it felt combustible, you know, we, so if you're going to run it into the ground, why not take the million bucks while you run it sure. into the ground, you know, but, but it was also very apparent that like these people were coming from a different world. They just like had nothing to do with where we were coming from. And, you know, a little of that was like, uh, you know, here we are, we're in New York City and we're just this small band from Gainesville, Florida, you know, or or here we are in L.A. at these parties or this, you know, these record executives house, like being wined and dined. It just felt unreal. And it, a little bit, you know, it's hard to explain a little bit like of the way it was actually then in the early 2000s, where it was very much a part of the fading 90s and 80s right. major label world. Like, I don't think that A&R people like that exist anymore. And, um, you know, it, it, it's it's hard to explain that. But, um, damn it, my train of thought. No, I understand <laughs> that because I got out in 97 and I know I got out at like the last second that you could, that there was really like, and I could imagine that people were still trying to hang on in a certain way right. at that time. So like, and we got, you know, one of the last straight up, just like record deals in that way, where it was like a record deal with- You mean that million and a half dollar deal was not a 360 deal? Yeah, no 360, nothing else involved, no publishing surrendered or anything, just a record deal, you know? So like, right. and it was one of the last one of those million dollar rock and roll band record deals. And that, you know, I don't know, it seemed like the happily ever after. <laughs> and and you want to believe it in a way. You want to believe, like, because you are, there, there, like, punk guilt is very much like Catholic guilt. And you're, you're you know, there's that part mm. of you that's like, I don't want to forget where I came from. Uh, but also, like, I hate where I came from. And, you know, like, I'm laying in the gutter, but I'm dreaming of the stars. And maybe this will change my life and get me out of this world. And I don't really see a future here. And, you know, I I, I don't know what what else are the alternatives. So you, you just like you're going for it. And um, I don't know, it's the, a little bit of that's the naivete of youth. Um, but uh, and how do you think about it now? I mean, I know you paid for your own. And now I guess you're just all DIY again in a way. Well, I guess, you know, I, okay, I remember what I was going to speak to in your question there about the the like creative control element yeah. too is that that I realized the lie that was that was there with that of what creative control actually entails when you're in a band is that it is um you know, you can have uh, an airtight legal contract that says you have a hundred percent creative control of yeah. every single decision with the record. But when it comes down to it, if you're working with a record label, if you're working with a team of people, you are an asshole. If you do not listen to those people's opinions and let them feel a part of the project and draw them in, which means that like, you know, we had a contract that said we have creative, creative control, but the A&R person is still going to come in there and give their legal suggestions for the chorus or for whatever. And and, and, you know, you aren't bound to listen to that, but there, there's a way for them to still pressure you. So like we went through yes. the indie record labels where it was like, okay, cool. We're working with this indie record label and they're ripping us off financially. And uh, yeah, we have all the creative control in the world. But at the same time, when we turn in a record, they tell us that they don't like the record and that they want us to change the sequence and we don't have to, but you know, there are record labels. So we're under that influence. So then graduating to like, why wouldn't you just have a contract that 
gives you creative control and then get the million bucks and then still have to make those compromises right. with the people around you, you know, yeah, like, because they can, they can leverage you by talking about how they're going to promote the thing and what they, th- and it, they can get insidiously into your head. So has that made you not want to do that stuff anymore? I mean, how do you, well, how do you look just, at it going forward? I mean, that's just the music industry on so many different levels. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, but some things never change. Uh, but uh, it, it, it certain things wear you out more than other parts of it, and I, I don't know. <laughs> so so no, so the new the new album. Um, when did you write, you said you have like thirty songs put recorded or recorded a ton? Put these fourteen out. In 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 your mind, Laura, what what unifies them? What is it about this group of songs at this time that mattered so much to you? Well, to me, with every record, what what is actually unifying to them and what makes them matter personally to me is that they feel like they feel like a journal. Um, it feels representative, especially if on average every record takes me a year or two to write. That it's like that was two years of my life, and there was whatever thing that happened in my in in those two years that spawned this song. Maybe you know it was like an emotional moment or it was like a, a traveling moment or something um, that I can look back and, 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 and be like, that's where I was. That's what I went through. That was my experience that gave me this emotion. I want to remember it. I made a record from it. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, that, that process of like, Oh God damn it. Now I got to write a bio for it and I got to go do huh. press for it. And like, uh, like the, the explanations or the way you end up talking about it in those circumstances isn't as true to like where you're actually coming from with it, but it's impossible to, to recapture that way. That was like the amazing thing about like having written a book, like a memoir where like you find yourself a couple years later being like, all right, now I got to write my bio that tells everybody what I've been up to, you know, what I've done. It's like, I've wrote a fucking memoir, read the book, you know? Yeah, it's there. (laughs) Uh, and it's a great memoir. I, I hope when people leave this podcast, they will, uh, not only listen to the new album stay alive but also find the book tranny and um i did the thing where i downloaded it and read it electronically but also the audiobook and driving oh, cool. around driving around listening to you talk even though oh do you like your voice now more um you know it's like the way it sounds in my head is totally different than it sounds when <laughs> recorded when i listen back or whatever um so no not really uh but oh, well, i really it was in- very very good to listen to cool. uh, on the other end of it it was great just so so you know i really enjoyed the audiobook process though i like i'm a huge doors fan and uh I, there's like the scenes in the movie the doors where jim is recording american prayer and i went into that thinking about those scenes in my head and i was like i want to smoke cigarettes and i want to drink and i want to record you were trying to have that much you were trying to have jim morrison level swagger <laughs> totally that's yeah that's hilarious and great um so just a couple more things at, uh that I, I want to know, have, have you and your dad found any peace or are you still not talking at all? I haven't talked to my dad in, uh, yeah, I guess like, I mean, since, uh, 2012 or 13, 12. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. To, I'm sorry to hear that. It's fine. That I've come scene... to a real place of peace on it. I, I have nothing but love and respect and it's fine. It's all good. You know, yeah, that scene with your brother and dad and you was so meaningful and intense. Um, and it made me actually understand a little bit the band dynamic, why you force these these families to like this family thing, even if it's rough. It, it made some kind of sense. All right, last thing. I have to. Did you ever meet or hear from Axl Rose, or did you never meet him? I've never met him. No. <laughs> and you never heard any reaction to the first album. No, from, other than um, um, you know, I I used to kind of be pen pals with um, a, a friend in in Italy who was like a Guns N' Roses super fan, and they sent me a picture one time of them holding a Guns N' Roses shirt or, or the reinventing Axl Rose shirt, and they were with Slash and Duff, and like we've played a couple festivals with Velvet Revolver, and I've met Duff a couple times. I met Slash once, um, so maybe they have some peripheral awareness of the album or its existence or whatever. I have no idea how, um, Axel. Oh, they must, <laughs> they must have some, uh, they must have some. And so lastly, what are your ambitions now? Like as, uh, as an artist and as someone thinking about their career and as a woman in the world, like, what is it as you look at the next couple of years, what are you, what is, uh, inspiring you or what dreams are you chasing now? 
I'm still trying to write that number one hit album. <laughs> uh, I mean that genuinely. Right. You know, I I'm still like chasing that high and chasing that like um chasing those uh <laughs> chasing those accolades. I guess no. Um, I don't know. You know, um, I'm waiting to see what happens right now, just like everyone else. And um, but my my overall approach to to this to to surviving the pandemic has been like I just want to keep working and I just want to re- keep recording and keep writing because you know half of what I do um, with with traveling and with touring and with playing shows I can't do right now. And you know we don't know when things are going to change back. And um, you know, it'll, it'll, I feel like it'll be weird for a while too, with how many bands will just be going out there trying to tour like quickly and, and everything. So I'm just kind of trying to focus on, on songwriting and, and, um, you know, doing the next record and, and other than that, being a parent and, and being, being here in Chicago. Awesome. I can't wait to hear even more new music from you. I hope you do some like shows live, like the whole steady just did three nights on zoom. I hope that you do some zoom shows or whatever kind of shows you want to do. <laughs> and, uh, and just please keep making music, Laura, it, uh, your music getting to really dive in again over these last few weeks has been amazing for me. The, the music has just been great the whole time. And the new album is really one of the best things you've ever done. So thanks so much for doing this. You can find Laura Jane Grace on Twitter. She's, are you on Instagram too? Oh yeah. They're both just at Laura Jane Grace. Great. Laura Jane Grace in both those places. You can find me at Brian Koppelman, and uh, I will see you all next time. Thanks for listening.